Amen. It's been a good run. Apostles' Creed number 22. How about that? It's been a very interesting series to me. It's one I've enjoyed preaching maybe as much as any series I've ever done in my, in my pastorate. All right, let me jog your mind because some of you joined us late in the series. Uh, you weren't here for the beginning, so I'll see if I can tie the very first two to this. With last week's beautiful baptism ceremony fresh in our minds, and it was a glorious Sunday last week, just a really, really beautiful service together. With that in your mind, what you experienced last week, I want to take you all the way back to sermon number one of this series. And I want to remind you how the Apostles' Creed was used originally in the congregation. In the ancient baptism ceremony, now I'm taking you way back, way back in history, early Christianity, when believers were ready to take the step of baptism, that first step of obedience to follow the Lord, they were asked to memorize a creed. And when they, like we say in the baptistry, Sam, are you trusting in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? It was a little different. They would say, Sam, would you like to now make your confession of faith? And they would recite from memory the old Roman creed, which was later modified, it was updated, expanded, to be the Apostles' Creed. They would make their confession. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And they would just, they would say the creed they had memorized, which is the common confession of the, the early Christian leaders. Now let's talk about why it's called the Apostles' Creed. It's not because it's just for the apostles. It's called the Apostles' Creed because the early Christian leaders, the generations after the apostles, the next couple of generations of Christians following the original apostles of Jesus Christ, they looked back to the apostles and they said, let's take the teaching of the original apostles of Jesus and let's distill it down to the very essentials of what the apostles taught us. Now remember, these are the people who wrote your New Testament, the apostles. So they're distilling the Scripture down, and they're saying, let's distill it down to the essentials, so that the Apostles' Creed is basically a summary of your Bible in about a hundred words. That's really what you're dealing with. And I would challenge and uh, every member of Cornerstone to memorize the Apostles' Creed. If you want a worthy task uh, that would be good for you, start memorizing the Apostles' Creed. Some of you have already memorized it in these 20-something weeks. Uh, If not, let me challenge you to do that. Be sure and ask, and we'll put the link back up freshly. Jesse Guy, if you're listening, put the link back somewhere where they can get it. There are several versions of it where people have altered a few words. One of the words that's been altered is the word Catholic I'm going to talk about this morning. There's no reason to take that word out of the creed. We're going to leave it in, and we're going to actually uh, suggest that if you memorize the creed, I think the Anglican version is the one we're using, just grab that version and memorize it. You will be better as a follower of Jesus for memorizing it, because if someone says, well, what do you believe? Well, where are you on this? It's there. I'll tell you what I believe. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. I believe He was. And you can just really say what you believe 
and you could say it to someone in about 30 seconds. And you could say, this is the basic teaching of Christianity. So now, for all of these weeks, we've talked through the Apostles' Creed. We come to the last paragraph, uh, the last, the first sentence of the last paragraph says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, everybody should be, if you've been here for the last nine weeks, be familiar with that line, I believe in the Holy Spirit. For nine weeks, now I have used our message time together to really expound upon that one sentence from the Word of God. And for nine weeks, I have spoken to you about your relationship with God's Spirit, We call Him Holy Spirit who lives inside every believer and what your relationship is like and what Holy Spirit is doing in your life and how He was the promise uh, promised in the prophets and how He arrived. All of this for nine weeks we've been talking about and I think maybe, hopefully, prayerfully, I have raised your spiritual understanding maybe to game changer status for some of you where now I'm hearing you tell me you know, hey, Pastor, Holy Spirit is speaking to me every day now. Took a few weeks before I really got tuned in to the voice of God, but we're having conversations. I feel His presence. I, I'm hearing from Him. He's guiding me. I'm learning to listen to His voice. I'm learning to be yielded to His suggestions, His leading, His guidance in my life. And that will be a game changer for your life when you begin to walk in the Spirit that way. Now that's the opening sentence of the last paragraph. Now my goal today is to discuss the next two lines of the Creed. We're in that very last paragraph now. And the next two lines of the Apostles' Creed say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in the communion of saints. So I want you to jog your memory back for... Thousands of years when Christians were being baptized in Europe and Asia, when they would come to that moment, those ancient Christians confessed their belief in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. They confessed their belief in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. They confessed their belief in the Holy Spirit that indwelled them and empowered the church. But here's what I want to call to your attention this morning. All of the ancient Christians at their baptism also confessed their belief in the Holy Catholic Church. It's inescapable. It's there. There it is. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And I believe in the communion of saints. Now let me see if I can resolve some issues for you this morning even as you've been seeing the video play and we've been saying the Apostles' Creed at the end of the service every week, uh, uh, that is the line where everybody's just tracking with me. You know, I believe in the Holy Spirit. When I get ready to say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, you can almost hear the silence in the room. And I know why. Because we were all raised in similar traditions. And uh, let me see if I can help you out this morning. As the English language has evolved over the last centuries. Does anybody want to dispute that, that the English language has evolved, first of all? I mean, are you speaking in Elizabethan, Shakespearean prose, King James English to your family or at work? None of you are doing that, okay? The English language has changed so much that now, you know, 
uh, we don't say, I don't know, you know, you just abbreviate it. Thanks is never T-H-A-N-K-S. It's never T-H-A-N-K space Y-O-U. It's just T-H-X now. I mean, truly, we're changing how we communicate all the time. And even meanings of words have dramatically shifted in, in hundreds of years. I sat in the student section at the OU football game yesterday. It's a very vocabulary expanding, very, very enriching experience. And so for those of you who are saying, well, I may be a little out of touch with how people talk today, student section of your local football game will be a great eye-opening experience to broaden your linguistic skills and maybe enhance your vocabulary. Anyway, uh, it's a great time, uh, and I, I'd recommend it. But just language has changed. So let me just be sympathetic to you for a moment. I do realize that the word Catholic may cause a visceral reaction in you if you were brought up in a tradition that frequently spoke about the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. I get that. The tradition I grew up in has a negative reaction to anything Roman Catholic. Anything. The way you decorate the building, lighting a candle, anything Roman Catholic. My tradition that I grew up in had a knee-jerk, equal and opposite reaction to that Roman Catholicism and would do even stupid things to distance itself from that Roman Catholicism. They would even go to error the other way just so they could say, see, we're not that. And they were as in as big of error over here as the Catholic Church was, Roman Catholic Church was over here, but at least it wasn't Roman Catholic. And that was kind of the stupid backward thinking of some of the tradition that we've experienced, many of us, in our journey. And so maybe you have the same experience where your tradition has the same negative reaction to anything that's Roman Catholic, or really anything that's European Protestant. Anything that's old world Europe Protestant and any of their practices, you may have grown up. And again, Americans are very John Wayne individualistic. Uh, if there's anything true about Americans, we do not want to be told what to do. We do not like conformity. We, we want to go our own way, blaze our own trail, be highly individualistic. And we tend to really push back against a lot of the religious practices and so what I want to say to you is that many of the evangelical practices that you grew up with are actually dramatic overreactions. They're knee-jerk reactions to things that were very common in the Christian church for 1,700 years. Okay? For 1,700 years, Christianity was operating before it got over here. Does that make sense? And some of the things that you're re really responding negatively to are very common for 1,700 years of Christianity, and we don't need to have such negativity towards them. So, as we try to shift our thinking for, from our old perceptions to fresh new understandings of what life is like in the Spirit and in the church, 
Uh, even this morning, I'll, I'll present to you a wide vo- group of voices from many different denominations, just so you don't, you know, you, I know you what you want to know. What you want to know is, Pastor, if you lead us in a, in a direction different than our old tradition, we just want to make sure we're not going out here in left field somewhere. And I get that. And so, listen, I'll give you a Many different perspectives this morning about what other denominations believe about this matter of, I believe, in the Holy Catholic Church. So let's deal with our belief, because now what you're going to have to wrestle with this morning is you've been with me, gosh, for 21 weeks, affirming, amening, uh, attesting, yes, pastor, I'm with you, this is, this is what we believe. So here's, I guess, where we've come to the, you know, uh, the line in the sand this morning. Do you believe in the Holy Catholic Church? When the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, what I need you to know this morning is it doesn't mean Roman Catholic Church. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic Church. And I'll show you the evidence for that in just a moment. But let's begin with Merriam-Webster. Here's the definition out of the dictionary. Catholic. Forming... The church, universal, primary definition. B, forming the ancient, undivided Christian church. Definition C, when capitalized, means the Roman Catholic church. Definition two, comprehensive or universal. Now this is why I tell you that the English language moves around and it's good to know what words really mean. Because, you know, if I say Catholic, I think our minds all go Roman Catholic. That is not what the Apostles' Creed is even talking about. The word Catholic means that believers in Jesus Christ form one undivided universal church. One undivided universal church. Many of our evangelical traditions, especially in the South here in the United States, never talk about one universal, undivided church. If you grew up in an evangelical tradition in the South, no one's ever talked to you about you're connected to all Christians everywhere. No one ever talked to you about being connected to other cultures, other times. No one ever talked to you about you are connected this morning to our loved ones who are already in heaven. They are also the church. Is that fair? They're worshiping this morning too. John over in the book of Revelation is talking a whole lot about some singing and shouting and, and stuff that, and, and bowing down and worthy is the Lamb that was slain and, and praising God. Handel's Messiah is written on this stuff. I mean the songs are coming out of this idea that they are worshiping not only in heaven but on earth this morning and we are connected the church is not divided my father was a part of the church of jesus christ is a part of the church of jesus christ but he's not on this earth anymore some of your loved ones are not on this earth right now they are with the lord to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord and they are in the lord's presence you say what's happening probably a lot of what's going on here this morning Worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. We are connected together. The church transcends Texas. It transcends white people. It transcends English speaking people. It transcends space and time. 
It crosses dimensions. So you're going to have to ask yourself this morning, are all believers together in one undivided, universal body called the church of Jesus Christ? Now, none of you probably are going to have a problem with this except the people who went to seminary. And the people who went to seminary, I knew exactly what they were taught, and I'm going to deal with them in just a minute. They were taught 100% incorrectly by the Baptist Seminary and the Pentecostal Seminary and, and, and maybe most of the seminaries, okay? The church members probably won't have a problem. Now, let me give you the big picture from 35,000 feet. I, I try to keep telling you the big story of the Bible. The big story of the Bible is God created the earth and he wanted a people to run the earth for him. They were, he's a suzerain and they were vassal kings and he was, they were living images of God, spirit of God in them. They, they were, they were, they were icons, living icons of God in a temple called Eden. And God had created the earth. He wanted a people. This was the whole design. The people rebelled against God. And the whole rest of the story is a series of covenants where God is making covenants with people to reform the people of God. And every time He tries to reform the people of God, nationally, the nation rebels against God. Every time. And so finally... God wipes out the nations, Noah's flood. Babel, he scatters the nations and confounds them. And finally finds a Gentile living in Iraq named Abram in Ur of the Chaldees. He's a Gentile and God says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I want a people and I'm going to build my own nation. Forget the nations. There are lots of nations. I'm, not, I'm done with them. I'm going to take you, sir, and your wife, who's barren, and you're old, and I'm going to make a miracle people of God from Abraham and Sarah, ultimately. That is the story of Genesis, I'm telling you. And then you get the children of Israel, and then they go into captivity, and then Moses delivers them and takes them to Sinai, and God makes a covenant and says, you, you're my, I want you to be my people, and I want you to have a heart for me, and I want to enter into a marriage ceremony with you called a covenant, and here are my ten commandments of the covenant. These are covenant rules. And I'm going to do this, and you're going to do that, and you're going to, I'm going to take you for my people, and will you take him to be your wife, and will you be my people? And they said, yes, we will be your people. But guess what? Even though they all had circumcisions, they all didn't have a heart for God. That's the story of the Old Testament now, from Exodus all the way to the end of the Old Testament. And they constantly rebelled against God, so the prophets stepped in, and the prophets said, God will make a people for himself who have a heart for him, but since you can't have a heart for him on your own, here's what God's going to do. God is going to send a Messiah to do something for you, and in those days, God will put his spirit into your hearts and re-inhabit you, and then you will be able to follow his commandments. So, when we get to the New Testament, here comes the Messiah. They knew that the new age would be marked by resurrection and spirit filling, and then it happens. And they all say, we have entered into this final age now. We realize the old age is passing. God is marking us for a people. And here's the thing. The church is the new Israel. You are the new people of God. The new people of God is very different. It's not about being one DNA, one genealogical family of Abraham. Galatians says, by faith you are Abraham's 
seed and heirs according to the promise. God's building one new people of God and it's called the New Testament church or the church of Jesus Christ. What's broken with humanity is being answered by the cross, the resurrection, and the church now. The church is the answer to what's wrong with humanity. God intends to make the whole human family as we are. By that I mean saved, spirit-filled, transformed by the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ, and on mission for our King, doing His bidding, which right now is to make disciples. Which is why division in the church is a denial of the gospel. Division in the church is a denial of the good news of all that God's trying to do. The the Christian church is to be Catholic. And I'm using that not in the Roman sense, but in the Merriam-Webster sense. The church is to be universal. In that the church is to always be bringing people together, uniting people of all color, uniting people of all nationality, bringing people together into the kingdom of God together in Jesus Christ. And wherever you discover a division in the body of Christ, in the church, your king is calling you to step across that line of division in the power of the Holy Spirit and bring people together in unity. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the people that unify. Let me read for you Ephesians chapter 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Say, Pastor, I need some counseling. Help me with my marriage. Here's a great line. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. And bearing with one another in love. Say, Pastor, I'm struggling in my vocation. Here's some great advice. Say, Pastor, I'm struggling in my child rearing. Here's some great advice. Here's some great advice for the church. Here's some great advice, period. Let's just be completely humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I want you to watch these next words. Paul said there is, what's this next word? There is, how many bodies? There's how many bodies of Christ? There's not a Methodist body, and a Baptist body, a Roman Catholic body, and a Church of Christ body, and a Presbyterian body, and a Disciples of Christ body, and a Church of Christ body, and a Mennonite body, and a Foursquare body, and a... No, Paul said there is one body and you know what else he said there is one holy spirit that unites people in that body watch him he'll use the word three more times just as you were called to one hope four more times five one lord one faith one baptism Okay, when you use the word one on me like six times in a row I kind of get the point that you're trying to say we're to be one And that's exactly what Paul was trying to tell the Ephesians. Throughout history, there have been groups of Christians in every period of history since Jesus. There have been groups of Christian believers scattered all across the nations. 
And as distant as we are from those other believers, those other believers are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. 100% still our brothers and sisters. And although we speak different languages, and although we have different cultures, we do have the same Lord We've believed the same gospel. We have the same baptism. We have the same Holy Spirit who has indwelled our lives and has united us into one global, universal, Catholic church. We are connected to other believers. For sure. So at the cross of Jesus, here's the way I want you to think about this. At the cross of Jesus, our sex, our race... And our social status becomes completely irrelevant. When it comes to salvation, there are no barriers. The gospel goes to everyone. And any division that humans make or any category or label that humans make, that is no barrier at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross eradicates all of those barriers and labels and makes them completely irrelevant. Let me go a step further. In the baptism waters... That we witnessed last week. All social divisions of this world are made insignificant. There was no popularity mentioned last week. No, where did you rank in your class? No, what group were you in with? No, how, what is your social standing? No, tell us what your income level is. What is your education? None of it matters. In the baptismal waters, they're irrelevant. Because the church includes every kind of person. Now watch what Paul told the European believers in Galatians chapter 3. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You've put on Christ. And then the famous verse number 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all, here comes this word again, one in Christ Jesus. Now here's the point I want you to grab this morning. Our new identity in Christ supersedes any other previous identity. Whatever you would identify yourself as and label yourself as and introduce yourself as and pride yourself in, here's what I am. When you come into Jesus Christ, being in Christ is your new identity. And that identity supersedes every other identity that you've ever had. Whatever defined you before your experience with Christ is no longer relative. What matters now is you've been indwelled by God's Holy Spirit and He has redefined you as a living part of the body of Christ. Now, just to show you this isn't a, you know, an isolated understanding of the word Catholic. Let me read you from the United Methodist Church. I'm reading right from their website now. When the creed states, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, this is the Methodist speaking, it refers to the wholeness of the whole church in all times and places rather than a specific branch of Christianity. The Methodist understanding is everything I've just articulated to you That the church is a one, universal, united body. In uh, Christianity Today, Timothy George wrote an article about this whole topic that I'm addressing this morning. I want to read some of the words from Christianity Today. When the word Catholic was first used in this sense, the way we're using it this morning, was in the early 2nd century. Now this is way back. 
These are the apostles' direct disciples now, okay? Ignatius of Antioch declared, ancient church father, discipled from the disciples, okay? Ignatius of Antioch declared, where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. You say, well, he's Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic Church hadn't even been invented yet. And Ignatius is using the word universal. Where Christ is, there is the expression of his church. George goes on to say this, Jesus Christ is the head of the church as well as its Lord. Protestant believers in the tradition of the Reformation understand the church to be the body of Christ extended through time as well as space the whole company of God's redeemed people through all ages. Protestants do not equate Catholic with Roman Catholic. The word Catholic simply means general, universal, concerning the whole. And I would challenge you even further. You guys are very familiar with John 17, which I talk about a lot. It's that big prayer Jesus prayed right before he went to the cross and, and with the disciples where he's praying for his disciples. And in that prayer, Jesus says, I, Father, I pray that you would make the disciples one with us, even as you and I are one. Jesus is praying for unity. He's praying for them to be connected to Jesus, to Jesus to be connected to God, for everybody to be connected together into one family, one body, one church. And if Jesus can pray for the unity of disciples and the unity of the church, I don't think uh, I would have a problem then praying for the unity of the church. I think we should be praying for it. I think we should be working for it. And by the way, the unity of the church will be realized at the day of resurrection when Jesus returns. Listen carefully to what I want to say. There will be no denominational distinctions in the resurrection. When the Lord, Je- If Jesus comes today and the dead in Christ are raised, there will not be a Baptist resurrection and a Methodist resurrection. There will be a resurrection. And when they are all raised, they will not be wearing some purple robes, some pink robes. You're on the blue team, you're on the red team, you're on the black team, you're on the green team. There will be the redeemed who have been resurrected. Enough with our stupidity. Okay? In the resurrection, we will be one church, one redeemed people of Jesus Christ. And I just pray you'll be in that company. That's the big deal. Get in that band of people and say, that is my, my team. Now, the Reformed theologians, here's, this is from Westminster Theological University. The creed is not identifying itself with Roman Catholicism. Rather, it is saying that the church is, what's the word? Universal. That it is not bound to a particular place or location. The church is to be found everywhere that Christ is worshipped in spirit and in truth. Listen, people all over the world are worshipping the same Jesus you're worshipping this morning. And they're worshiping in services that would look nothing like this. I've been in, a, in, in just so many services. There are no chairs. Everyone's sitting on the floor. There's little straw mats rolled out. People are in brightly covered shawls covering their heads. People are in tribal wrappers identifying the, 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 the ethnic tribe they come from. They're singing songs. They're worshiping. They're praying. It looks nothing like this, but they're still your brothers and sisters. Same gospel, same Jesus, 
same Holy Spirit, just a different cultural expression of that sameness. The Presbyterian view. Dr. Legan Duncan said this, We believe it is a Catholic church because it embraces all true believers everywhere apart from specific denominational affiliation. All right, so far I've agreed with the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Reformed. I agree with everything they're saying. And I find the Scripture agrees with that as well. The great commentator that even Baptists love to use, Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry said this, when we take God for our God, we take His people for our people. Listen, it's not usually part of the invitation, you know, but let me put it into a marriage perspective. When I married Susan... I married her family. And when Susan married me, she married my family. For better or worse. And a lot of you have lived this, right? When you love someone so deeply, you're willing to deal with the baggage that comes along with that in your family relationships. Matthew Henry said, when you take God for your God... You have taken his people for your people. Now, I rarely will do that in an invitation where I say, this morning I'd like you to pray and receive Jesus Christ. And by the way, you're going to be in a relationship with all of us. <laughs> so you have to take us all. You take Jesus, you have to take all of us this morning. I'm afraid it would deter people, so I don't do that. But you understand what's happening. Listen, when you, listen, and, and let's just be completely transparent. When you're ready to be married, you're so in love with the person you're about to marry, you'll take their family. You'll do it. You know their family's crazy. You've already met them. You know your own family's crazy. You've lived with them. You've warned your upcoming relation. You know you've warned your 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 bride to be or groom to be. Now you're married into a crazy family, and it's what's going to be like. And they're blah, 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 blah. and here we got some crazy tradition. And we're all together, and we're going to drive you crazy. But they love you so much, they'll do it anyway, right? I've never been able to talk anybody out of it. Say, you're marrying a family that's nuts. You don't want to do this. No one will listen to you. They love, and they're going to take the step. Listen, I want us just to overlay that on the body of Christ this morning. Whenever we're dealing with people, it's going to be messy. Because we're people. And we're messy. We've got all kinds of issues and baggage. But listen, when we've believed on Jesus Christ, He loved me with all my baggage, and He loved you with all your baggage. And he said, I'll just take all of us with all of our baggage, jam it together in the church, and I'll forgive it all. And I want you to, I want you to deal with each other in the way that I deal with you. I want you to love the brethren in the way I love the brethren. And I want you to, the advice I just gave you, have peace, have forbearance, have patience. Deal with each other in love. Let me say it to words that are a little more Texan. You can absorb a whole lot. Just take it. You say, but I don't have to. No, what you're displaying right now is your spiritual baby. Because I'll tell you what a spiritual parent does and a spiritual grandparent does. They take a whole lot. They take a whole lot and they just absorb it. They don't do anything with it. They just take it and say, yeah, I don't have to respond to that. Not now, not ever. I'll just overlook that. I'll just love that. I'll just deal gently with that. Listen, the Bible is so full of wisdom on this. Uh... Even Augustine, the great ancient theologian, he had strong, strong words about this. He said, when you take the church, when you take God as your father, you've taken the church as your mother. That's Augustine, the theologian. 
When you take God as your father, you're taking, Je- you're taking the church as your mother. In other words, you're marrying into a family when you take Jesus and it comes together as a package deal and it's to all be unified. This unified oneness that I'm speaking about was Paul's recurring theme through the New Testament. You will not escape this. What I'm preaching to you this morning, this universal nature of the church is what the book of Galatians is about. It's what the book of Ephesians is about. It's what the book of 1 Corinthians has to do with. This is the subject matter of the New Testament. You will not escape this. It's in the book of Romans. It's in the book of Hebrews. It's everywhere. The the topic we're talking about right now. Let me go to Ephesians and I'll read you some of what Paul's telling the Ephesians. Now here's what you need to know. In the Ephesus church, there are Jews and there are Gentiles. And this is true of all of these ancient churches. Let me just say it to you in just the easiest way I can say it to you. There couldn't be any bigger polar opposites than Jews and Gentiles. You see, we have a division in the modern American church between Democrats and Republicans. Listen, Democrats and Republicans are practically kissing the brother. They are just like, we have, compared to Jews and Gentiles, Democrats and Republicans is nothing, is what I'm trying to say. We're way closer together than what Jews and Gentiles were. Jews and Gentiles were so far apart, a Jew would not drink a cup of water with a, with, with a Gentile. They were so far apart, they, they believed they were just trash. Each, they, they, they had nothing in common. Polar opposites, okay? And those are the two groups that the New Testament keeps talking to. So when you think, well, in our church we've got, you know, we've got different kinds of people. You know, in here we've got criminals and judges. In here we've got criminals and attorneys. We've got ex-cons and people who prosecute ex-cons. How's that going to work in the church? Well, it's supposed to. It's supposed to. You, you, You realize we have law enforcement and lawlessness sitting in the same church. You say, how does that work? Well, it's supposed to. Because now something bigger is in play, and it's the Holy Spirit in us, uniting us into one body of Christ. You say, what do we do with that? We overlook it and move forward. I'm telling you, the things we have going on in the church pale in comparison to what the first church had to deal with. This was radical. So when you hear Jew and Gentile, I want you to think two polar extremes that no one in history has ever been able to reconcile these two groups together. And now they are trying to come together in the New Testament church of Jesus. Here goes Paul, Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made two groups, Jews, Gentiles, one And has destroyed the barrier. Whatever you two groups are fighting over, whatever is the barrier between Jew and Gentile, the blood of Christ has destroyed that barrier. Look what it says. The dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new Humanity out of the two. Going to take two things that could never get together and by a miracle of saving grace, going to put them together into one, thus making peace, verse 16, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility, 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far away 
Gentiles, and peace to you which were near Jews, 18. For through him, Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. There it is again. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Now let me put it in the layman's terms for you. Paul saying that the Gentile Christians, along with the Jewish Christians, are not only part of the universal church, but they're part of the local church body of Ephesus. He's saying to the Gentiles in particular that were really looked down upon, you are not second class citizens, and it has been God's plan since the beginning to create a church that contained both Jews and Gentiles, people from every tongue, every tribe, every race, every people, together in the church of Jesus Christ. And now the time has come, Paul is saying, this was written 2,000 years ago, now the time has come that all of the people of God are being gathered together into Christ's church, and even the two extreme examples, even the two groups that were so at odds with each other that could never be reconciled, Jews and Gentiles, now the opposition has been destroyed, and they are being made into one body through the work of Christ, and the unifying power of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what I want to say to everyone at Cornerstone this morning. In my opinion, it brings glory to God to present to this world a group of people who are very diverse and different in dramatic ways, now all living together in one community, in harmony, in peace. It brings glory to God, is what I'm saying, for the world to see a group of people like us that are very diverse people now worshiping together, loving one another, caring for one another, serving one another, on mission with one another, building up the kingdom of God with one another. It is to God's glory that here in this room, in this body that we pull together called Cornerstone Church, It is to God's glory that we have people from diverse traditions coming together to serve God with one voice and one unity. This honors God. People can say, well, I was raised Methodist. I attend Cornerstone. We're all on mission together to make this out. I was raised Church of Christ. We're at Cornerstone. We're all working together. I was raised Baptist. Okay, but we're all together. I was raised Wesley. We're all together. I was raised a uh, Presbyterian. We're all together. We don't all have similar backgrounds at all. And it brings glory to God for diverse people to come together and let the old identities pass away and let a new identity be born and let it supersede all other identities that we are now part of the church of Jesus Christ. Let me, sh- let me just read the next verse that Paul wrote to those Ephesians. We are carefully joined together in him. Carefully, very carefully joined together in becoming a holy temple for the Lord. There are two places, especially in the book of 1 Corinthians, here again in Ephesians, but there are two places where the Bible expressly says the Holy Spirit is templed. It is in this assembly this morning, just like this. And it is you as the individual believer. 
There are two different temples talked about in the New Testament. None of them are buildings. One is the human body that has received Christ as Savior. God lives in you as His temple. And the other is the assembly of the church when we come together. For those of you who are watching online, we love you. You watch online as long as you need to. But until you can assemble with the body, there's something going to be missing in your walk. You cannot reproduce what happens in this room when Holy Spirit comes and moves in our hearts through worship and prayer and through the moving in the message. So, all right, so let me deal with the theologians very quickly. I need to start beginning to wrap. Is the church local or universal? Now, this is an argument they make in seminary and drive everybody crazy with. It has nothing to do with the Bible, but it's an argument. Is the church local or is the church universal? Because they want to say it's local and not universal. So for the theologians in the room, the only way I note as lovingly as I can say to you, you were taught by small and petty men who invented silly divisions where none should have existed. It does not take a theologian to figure out that the church is both local and universal. It is local because here we are. Where are we? 7955 North Beach Street, Fort Worth, Texas, 76137. And here we have assembled as the local, visible expression of the church of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you a question. Is my father, who's deceased, part of the church? My grandparents went to church all of my adult life, served, led kids to Christ, served as the, are my parents part of the church? Jeff, you're an easy target because you sit down front. Is your sister part of the church? Praise God, she is. I mean, your, your, your folks part of the church? Alan, they're raised, they raised Church of Christ. Can they be in heaven? I mean, yeah, they are. Sure they are. Do you understand my point this morning? The church transcends this local location. Let me ask you a question, if you're still dubious. They're worshiping in Matagalpa, Nicaragua right now. They're celebrating and doing some things we've helped them to do, and the church is exploding with growth. Are they the church? Well, they're not speaking English, and they're not even, even anywhere near us. You say, well, they're a different local church. Yeah, but they're this, preaching the same gospel and have the same spirit we have. I mean, Elijah's doing his Sunday night worship right now in Romania. Is he the church? Are his other Romanians the church as well? What about Ezekiel? They're doing, are they still the church in India this, this morning? They, they worship the same Jesus that you were singing praise to a minute ago. Are they the church? Sure they are. You're getting the point. The Holy Spirit has saved us and put us into the body of Christ. And the church transcends a location. It transcends time and space. Our deceased loved ones are not only in the church, but our future disciples are going to be in the church as well. There's still people we haven't led to Christ and disciple. They're going to be a part of the church as well. And Jesus already knows who they are, and we haven't even met them yet. They're going to be part of the church as well. The church transcends space and time, but it is also local. It is both. It is invisible in its universal nature, and it's visible in its local expression here at 7955 North Beach Street. It's obvious Paul is writing to local visible churches and he's telling them to recognize that they're part of something bigger and invisible. <laughs> he's writing to the church of Ephesus, the church of, uh, of Corinth, and he's saying, hey, there's something bigger going on than just you. We are united together in Jesus Christ. 
You are part of something that is inclusive of all races and all genders and all cultures, rich and poor, slave and free, and, and that's all because of the work of Christ and what the Spirit is doing. Now, I want to stop on the church one. I think we all agree to, to somewhat extent. You won't have to email me if you disagree. It's fine. You're allowed to disagree. But now let me deal with the last line. It'll only take a couple of minutes. The communion of the saints. What do we believe about the communion of the saints? Well, the creed says, I believe it. Okay, so let me explain, because this is another English word problem. This is another word, communion, that you can misunderstand, because communion, for example, if I said, hey guys, today we're going to talk about communion, what would you think we're going to talk about? Give me some synonyms for communion. Lord's Supper is the most common one. Lord's Table, I've heard before. Uh, In the Protestant denominations, you would hear the word sacrament. In the Roman Catholic Church, you'd hear the word Eucharist. Some Christians would say, well, breaking of bread, or the bread and the cup, or you would hear those as synonyms for communion. But actually, this line in the Creed is not referring to the Lord's Supper. It means something very different. The Greek word for, well, the Greek word is koinonia, where we get the word communion, but its other definition is fellowship, participation. So it's very interesting the way the creed has been assembled. The first line says, I believe in the universal church. I believe in the holy Catholic church. The next line says, I believe in participating with it. I believe in the communion of the saints. Is a light bulb going on? I believe in the church and I believe I ought to be involved with it. The Apostles' Creed said at baptism where believers were saying, yes, I confess my belief in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I've confessed my belief in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the universal church. And I believe I should be involved in it. And that's what I'm saying at my baptism. How cool is that? That's a very strong statement because after we baptize people in America, in most of our evangelical churches, the FBI couldn't find them. I mean, seriously, you baptize them, they're like, okay. And it's almost because in our context in America, we've ticked some boxes that said, okay, I'm saved, I'm eternally secure, I know God wants me to be baptized, okay, I'm good now. Set that bad boy on cruise control, and we'll just slide on in now, and we just go on about our business. We don't need to be involved in the church. And really, among evangelicals in particular, there's a very low view of the church in America, where... I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be connected to a church. I don't need to be accountable to a church. You know, I just kind of sermon sample and church hop. I don't need any commitment to the body of Christ. I'm saved. I've been baptized. Therefore, the creed absolutely destroys that type of thinking. The ancient Christians said, we believe in the church and we believe in the communion of saints. I'm going to say it a different way. We believe in the universal church and I believe that I, as a part of it, must be involved with the church. I must be connected. I'll use the synonym. I must have fellowship. I must have interaction. I must have participation with that universal church of Jesus Christ. So the line in the creed is not talking about the Lord's Supper, although we're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a second. It's not talking about that. Although the Lord's Supper is something we do together that binds us together, the line in the creed is talking about being involved in the church. It's saying, I realize there is a church, and now God calls upon me to use my talent, my ability, my energy, my resources, my possessions to help advance 
the kingdom of God because we've been united together through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, let me just quickly give you a couple of thoughts. So, what are the implications of that? So, the communion of the saints has to do with giving of your resources to the church, to the whole. That is participation. That is the communion of saints. Let me read you a few beautiful verses from 2 Corinthians. Each of you, give what you have decided to give, decided in your heart to give, but not reluctantly. Never feel like you're under compulsion, that you're being coerced into giving. For God loves a cheerful giver. You ought to approach giving as like, it brings me joy to be able to give. Certainly you get this because you're coming to the Christmas season. The happiest people in this room will not be the people with most presidents to open. It will be the people who gave the most presents. You'll have much more joy watching people open what you've purchased for them than opening what people have purchased for you. It is true what Jesus said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Listen, if you don't do anything else in this invitation in a moment, get on your knees here and say, God, make me a generous person. Because generous people are happy, they are fulfilled, they are blessed, they are enriched, they, they, they get things done. Susan and I hold, heard a whole uh, study on generosity the other day, and you're just like, man, after hearing that study, I want to be a generous person. They're like the people who are happy and get everything done. Watch what, what, what Paul went on to say to them. Verse 11 says, you will be enriched in every way. Now, I just want to pause right there. If I said to you this morning, hey, I want to preach to you about a truth I found in the Bible, and here's how you can be rich in every way. Truly be rich in every aspect of your life. I'm going to do a seminar, and I'd like you to sign up for it. I feel like we'd have a full house on how to be rich. Here's what Paul said. I want you to be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. When you're generous, God gets praise. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, it is overflowing to many expressions of thanks to God. Remember, when you give, God gets glory because His church, His people are becoming like Him, a generous and giving heart. Let me give you another one. Communion would be participating with the church assembly. So the communication of saints is carried out when we participate in whatever the church is doing. Here's where we unite together. Here's where we work together as a team. It's where we teach the truth. It's where we put our feet together, our hands together, our voices together to be the hands and feet of Jesus to our community. I would say also that communion is church worship. It's a beautiful wording in the NLT of Romans 8. Let me read that, Romans 15. May God who gives patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with one another, as is fitting for the followers of Jesus Christ. Then all of you can join together in how many voices? So somehow, coming together, we can give praise and glory to God with one voice. How? Because God has taken people of all different ancestries and all different backgrounds and has put us together in the body of Christ and now as we worship with one voice we worship and praise God together listen I think you need church worship I think that is the communion one of the aspects of the communion of the saints I would say communion is making a practice to show up and participate that's really what the creed is talking about show up and participate 
You know, one of the things my, my parents taught me about being able to succeed in the workplace was the guy who wins in the workplace who shows up. Show up. Prepared. Now, I can add some subpoints to that. Prepared, early, on time, looking presentable. I mean, there's a lot of ways to succeed. But I'll tell you what, if you want to just, there's something to be said just about showing up, just being there, and being consistent in a matter The Bible did talk about this in Hebrews chapter 10 as a part of this communion of the saints. Let me show it to you. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together. As some people do, and they will. But let us come together to encourage one another, especially now that the day of the Lord's coming, Lord's return is drawing near. Let me leave you with one close, uh, one quote as I close this. It's a fascinating quote I found from Reverend Katie Shockley. Here's what she said. When we gather in worship, we praise God with believers we cannot see. Listen, you've never been as connected to your loved ones who've gone on to heaven as when you come to a worship service. You, you, you together with God's church singing praises, that's exactly what the rest of the family is doing. You, you are connected to them in a supernatural spiritual way that you're probably closer to them than you are at any other time of the week. Katie Shockley said this, When we gather in worship, we praise God with believers we cannot see. When we celebrate Holy Communion, we feast with past, present, and future disciples of Christ. We experience the communion of saints and the community of believers living and dead. This faith community that you're a part of stretches beyond space and time. We commune with Christians around the world, believers who came before us, believers who will come after us. We believe that the church is the communion of saints and as a believer, you belong to the communion of saints and praise God that we do when you receive Jesus Christ as your savior because of the new covenant because of the new deal that Jesus made with us through his cross and resurrection when you put your faith in Jesus Christ you enter into that new covenant of salvation with Jesus Christ and you're born again Being a covenant member of Cornerstone happens when you enter into a covenant relationship with the other members. Just make a distinction about that. When you receive Christ as your Savior, you become a part of the family of God. I would challenge you to take the next step and be baptized, and then the next step and be a covenant member of Cornerstone. There are some prerequisites, of course, and to be a member of our Assembly here, what we're going to ask you to do is make sure you can tell us about your salvation experience. Have you received Christ as your Savior? We're going to ask you to be baptized. We may even ask you to strive together for the unity of the body of Christ. And then we're going to ask you to enter into a covenant with the other church members that says, I'll treat this body with unity, with respect, with love like a family. I'll overlook shortcomings. I'll deal with each other in love and unity, and together we'll join our hands to make disciples, to care for the mission work around the world, to care for the saints. We'll care and manifest and push forward the kingdom of God in this present world. 
That's what this is all about. You need community. You need accountability. It is the only way to maturity. The universal church can only accomplish what a local congregations around the world are willing to do. If the local congregations drop the ball, then the global church suffers because we're not doing our share. You think about it like on a team, and if the linemen stop blocking, the running back's going nowhere. Quarterback will be dead in the water in about two seconds, you know, before he can even get rid of it. It takes a whole team working together, and the church is very much that team. I want to challenge you in this coming holiday season, be the church of Jesus Christ. Make a difference in this world. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go right into take communion. Before we take communion this morning, I'd like to give you a personal challenge and a personal opportunity to respond to God and, and to say to God, God, as I eat this communion, I'm, I'm eating maybe with a fresh perspective that I'm connected to something bigger than I ever understood. I thought maybe I was just connected to the pastor and the church people around me, but God, I'm connected to something much bigger than I comprehended. I'm connected to Peter and Paul. I'm connected to people of other denominations. They're my family too. I'm connected to people of all colors around the world this morning who are worshiping you. And God, you've opened my eyes. You've increased my perspective this morning of what your church really is. Every time we take communion, it is a covenant renewal ceremony. We're about to take communion with each other as a church, but also we're about to take communion as part of a bigger church, the family of God, the church Catholic, the church universal. What a privilege to be a part of God's people. You are the fulfillment of everything God said he was going to do. I will get me a people who have a heart to follow. You are those people. I would just ask you in this moment before we take community, communion just to say to your God, God, I'm honored to be a part of your church. God, maybe I've not been engaged like I should have been engaged. This creed has opened my eyes to what Christians have always professed, not only to believe in a church, but to believe I needed to be highly involved, participatory. And God, I want to rededicate myself to participation. Giving participation, showing up participation, serving participation. Some of you need to be discipled. We need you to get in the process. Some of you need to make disciples. You, you know what to do and you're just... Yeah, you haven't got disciples right now. Okay, let's pray that God brings those disciples in to your life and you can build a relationship. And in these coming days, especially this coming year, make a disciple. Every member needs to make a disciple for Jesus Christ. It's part of the participation of the church. God did not save you just so you'd be safe. And you could put it on autopilot all the way in. He saved you to be involved. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in the communion of saints, the participation of God's people.